Hello everyone, I'm Keaton, I'm joined by Clara, Yasmin and Jamie. This is the third episode of the Northern Plights podcast where we're going to talk about the Northeast in the Second World War. Most of the episode's going to be mostly on the home front, but we're also going to talk about Northeast divisions and things like that. The general structure of the episode, we're going to start with militarization industry, then we're going to talk about the Blitz in the Northeast, then civilian roles, and then military defenses. The general background would be United Kingdom declares war on Nazi Germany in 1939. However, the Blitz doesn't start till 1940, and that's when the majority of conscription and militarization begins. So I think if it's all right with you, Clark, can we start with you to give us a sort of background on what's happened industrially? Of course, in, in the war period, we've got there's been depression, there's been recession. And so for the Northeast, with its heavy industries, it's been quite, it's been a silver lining a war in the way, because there's massive amounts of employment now. So so can you give give a bit of a background for it? Sure. So uh, the Northeast was indeed important for the industrial war effort. And as historian Dan Jackson found out, uh, the time and the wear would produce over half of the four million tons of shipping for the war. And even German uh, radio broadcasts stressed the region's importance as a like vital target, let's say. Yeah. Does anyone else have anything about the industrial? You you were saying it was Dan Jackson, the historian, about the North East, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, in the Northumbrians. Does anyone else have anything about the industrialization part? Just, yeah, just I think it's important that we kind of note the significance of the Northeast. Like the Northeast was a very important strategic target for the Germans in World War II, because obviously we had heavy industry, obviously shipbuilding, uh, particularly um, in the Tyne and in the Weir. But obviously, as well as that, there's the coal production um, in the region. And there's also the fact that the region was an important agricultural area as well. So in terms of its contribution to the war, in terms of material, it was really significant, so it was was an, an obvious target for the Germans. Yeah, that's great. It was a strategic target, and I also know that there, there, there weren't any during the Blitz. There weren't any lights around the the River Tyne because the Germans could use the Tyne to navigate to Edinburgh and Glasgow, and then further on to Belfast or south to London as well. So, do we have have any st- statistics on sort of militarization of recruitment or anything like that? For example, on the 14th of May, uh, 1940, Anthony Eden appealed to the nation for local defense volunteers. And, and, the, uh, and yeah. sorry, Anthony Eden was, he was the foreign minister, right? Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. And he broadcasted this at uh, 9 p.m. that day. I want to speak to you tonight about the form of warfare which the Germans have been employing so extensively against Holland and Belgium, namely the dropping of troops by parachute behind the main defensive lines. Since the war began, the government have received countless inquiries from all over the kingdom, from men of all ages who are, for one reason or another, not at present engaged in military service, and who wish to do something for the defense of their country. Well, now is your opportunity. We want large numbers of such men in Great Britain who are British subjects 
between the ages, ages of 17 and 65. 17 and 65. To come forward now and offer their service in order to make assurance doubly sure. The name of the new force, which is now to be raised, will be the Local Defence Volunteers. And before midnight, over 460 uh, men uh, of like Newcastle and the surroundings area enrolled to this uh, volunteer division. Wow, that's great. So I think I think we should go straight in with the blitz. So. Yasmin, you've got a few like case studies and sort of the, the moral of the story, don't you, about what people did during the Blitz that I think especially that a lot of people nowadays in the, in the current situation could use. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, yeah, so there was a lot of, obviously for us now, if there was a bombing to happen, it would be a big thing for us. But mm. there was a lot of like in Whitley Bay, when bombing would happen it would just like people would expect it and they'd know to go into air raid shelters but then there was like a case study of a seven-year-old boy in Whitley Bay and at the start of the war obviously the bombing was a big thing but then it got to the point where it would be normal for them to walk past houses that had been destroyed and it would just he talks about the teachers would take them to go to the cliffs to see the British submarines and so it sort of the war sort of became and the bombing became a an occurrence that they just got used to. Yeah. Don't you have? You, I, I was looking. You know, you have a northeast film archive, which has a more a positive sort of contrast to that because everyone's experiencing the blitz in their own different ways, aren't they? Of course, it's miserable for some people, but you talk about that sense of normality that you need to sort of continue through that sort of. Uh, disaster. Yeah, so there was the Northeast Film Archives. There's a video from Gateshead Council's month of holiday making in 1944, which was part of the government's Holidays at Home programme. And it was held in Saltwell Park. And basically, it was to just take a break from the war and for the mothers and some of the fathers to go with the children. And they just did sports games, they had fairground and donkey rides. And like all the parents took part in a lot of the races and it was sort of made to like for the children to make friends and to have like a sense of normality, especially for the young ones who had been their whole life had been the war. And so it just sort of was a day to forget what had happened. And then obviously they'd go back and they'd have to worry about if the blitz had happened again. But. Yeah, it just sort of, and it gave like a chance for the mothers and some of the fathers to just talk to each other. Yeah. What would you say about the sort of moral on the, the story? Sort of, we're all facing tragedy, that sort of thing, but because the everyday civilians, they're, they're all doing their bit, aren't they? They're clearing up rubble and they're trying to support the troops and things. And they're just muddling through. Yeah, I yeah. think the idea is that it's hard for everyone, but if we can all keep together and work together, then we can get through it. Yeah, great, excellent. Something we can definitely use these days. Can we talk about specific uh, bombings as well? I know North Shields plays a quite important bit in that. Does anyone want to mention what happened there? 
yeah, so um, that was probably the worst air raid or the, 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 the worst number of fatalities from a single air raid was on the 3rd of May 1941 in North Shields. And it was all just down to one bomb, actually. So it shows you that there was much larger air raids, but this, these casualties were actually the result of one aircraft dropping one bomb. Um, and it landed on a building which was known locally as the Lemonade Factory, which was um, a local um, soft drink manufacturer's um, premises that had a public air raid shelter underneath it. Um, and when the bomb struck the building, the building collapsed and all the machinery and the rubble from the building fell into the shelter below. Um, I think it was 107 people died and over 40 of those were, were children. So it was a pretty horrific event. Um, that happened. So that was probably the the, the worst um, single loss of life from an air raid in the northeast. But there, there was several severe air raids. And I think that's part of the thing was it sort of ha the air raids sort of happened in fits and stops where so people would sort of relax because there hadn't been a major one for a while and then there would be another one. So it was kind of this on and off kind of thing which would kind of meant that everyone was slightly always unsettled because he didn't know when the next one was going to come. So I think it was, yeah, I think we shouldn't underplay, you know, what a significant um, stress it was on people all the time. Yeah, but that, that was the worst one. But there was, there was many others and there was many um, examples of just amazing heroism by, by civilians um, dealing with the air raids and the aftermath as well. Yeah. Do, do I have anything on sort of how people counter try to counteract these air raids if we're talking about sort of Anderson shelters or any defences like that against air raids because the, the Luftwaffe they're using tip and run tactics so they're, they're flying in low so the radars don't detect them and they're going for obviously the industrial centres of the time T's weir valleys and things like that yeah so so this is, yeah. yeah go for it so it was, yeah so yeah this tip and run tactics is like what I'm saying so it's kind of like almost like a psychological thing because in terms of the numbers of aircraft on a lot of the raids there were some big raids but a lot of the raids was just a few aircraft and they would sneak in lower like you say under the radar so they couldn't be detected until they were right on top of the urban centers in the northeast and then they would target specific areas and so you, it was a psychological impact of that constantly keep people on edge because you didn't know and when it was going to happen, and because with the tip and run ones, when they were able to sneak sneak through, there wasn't any very there wasn't there was very little warning, um, before it happened. And there's also the fact that there was was one actually it was the first air raid I think on Newcastle was what were raided by a single aircraft um, trying to hit the high level bridge, um, and it actually missed the high level bridge. But on it when it was leaving, it just it dumped its bombs, which they often did. They just jettisoned their bombs randomly, um, mm -hmm. in order so they could fly faster and get away. Um, it actually jettisoned three bombs um, onto the streets of Jarrow and killed 14 people and injured like over 100 civilians. So it was just quite random as well. Um, yeah. which is, you know, the psychological impact of that is, you know, would have been massive for people. Oh, for, definitely. And you, and you were, when you talked about the, uh, the North Shields attack, that, that bomb, um, I think was like the, the deadliest, like sort of bomb attack outside of London, just not, not just in the northeast. And you talk about, unfortunately, about uh, children fatalities.
do I have anything on uh, evacuations or uh, children leaving for the countryside and things like that? Yeah, so on the 1st and the 2nd September, I think over 40,000 Newcastle children uh, were evacuated uh, to Cumberland, Northumberland and also uh, North uh, Yorkshire. And consequently, also some shelters were built. I think there were over 1,800 Anderson shelters uh, in Newcastle area. Right. The, these people, these kids, they're moving to countryside and they're, they're, they're just helping out, aren't they, with their sort of domestic front. They're, they're working on farms and they're with strangers, of course, as well, which we, we tend to forget. So, sometimes, they'll, obviously, they'll go with their relatives, but they have to... They have to leave their parents behind, which is like the psychological effect of that. I can't even imagine it. There was also quite um, like class division that the lower classes families didn't well, couldn't allow to send their children uh, like away to countryside because right. they had to work and provide for the family as well. I didn't think of that. Right. Oh, God. Um, so yeah, just about the children being evacuated, I think there's something that we should probably mention is that um, the sort of early period, so that this sort of initial mass evacuation of children that Clara's talking about, was 1939. So this is sort of in the period of the phony war at the beginning, where yeah. there was this kind of period where war had been declared, but there wasn't really a lot happening, or didn't seem to be, particularly on the home front. So people kind of were in this kind of limbo state where people didn't really know what was happening and some people weren't quite taking it seriously because nothing seemed to be happening and there was a case of people being evacuated um but then several months later people actually children being evacuated but then several months later because nothing was happening children coming home coming back and then having to be subsequently re-evacuated when um bombings did happen and particularly in 1941 when uh, a few of these larger raids on the northeast happened. There was the evacuation of children again um, into rural areas. Um, I think it's also as well as people going to sort of local areas. There was quite a few children were sent like even further afield. Like those people from the region were sent to like foreign countries, to Canada, and to Australia on ships. Um, and obviously, on those ships, some of those ships were sunk by German U-boats. Um, so some of these people had some of these children had some pretty amazing ordeals being evacuated mm -hmm. on ships and then being sunk and then having to be returned home so yeah it, it, it was quite a dramatic experience for some of them i yeah. bet I, I didn't even think of that when because because I, I know when I, when you said far field i thought because i've seen things about children that being moved to sort of the northwest they're moving to cumbria or into scotland but australia yeah. and canada oh it's heartbreaking honestly and any any more uh, case studies or anything about or anything like that about the uh, bombings or anything or about children's experiences and uh, there was one yeah, bombing on the 25th of april in 1941 and so the germans had claimed that 60 aircrafts had dropped 80 tons of high explosives on sunderland but they'd actually got their geography wrong and it hit newcastle and a lot of residential areas and it destroyed over like several houses and 35 people were killed, including six of them from just one family. Right. So it was quite like people expected them to hit the industry areas, but it really shocked people that obviously it was dark and they got the geography wrong. Mm -hmm. And they ended up just and it was hitting residential areas and people just weren't expecting it. 
Yeah. So, so just just to clarify, when we think of the Blitz, we think London, and then obviously it starts off there. They're attacking uh, strategic areas like air bases and industrial centres, and then eventually it moves on to attack civilians in London. With Newcastle and Sunderland in the northeast, would you would you say from what you've read that that's more these are more strategic? You and then these civilian attacks, they they mostly accident but then of course you're talking about how they jettisoning their own payloads to leave is that right yeah um i mean there will be navigational errors i mean bombing was incredibly incredibly inaccurate in that time the technology for accurately bombing was didn't really exist so it was all kind of just guesswork and press the button hope for the best but if there was kind of indiscriminate the indiscriminate jettison of of bombs, the, the pilots could have chose to jettison their, their, their bombs somewhere else. They chose to target residential areas and just randomly drop bombs and kill civilians. But I think, yeah, the, the overall actual objective, um, I think, in this region seems to have been targeting of industry, particularly the Tyne. And there was there was a large nighttime air raid along the River Tyne, which targeted various different um industries there and there's some quite interesting stories of the sort of the heroics of the workers who actually instead of running away from the bombing actually ran towards the areas to try and protect the, the factories and in, in, in the areas where they worked so yeah i think it was, it was very much targeting the, the industri- industrial capabilities of the, of the region yeah and um, just to sort of enforce your point with the industrial capacity i'm trying to think which um i'm looking around which book it is but I think it's Anderson's. Um, all the books were put into the the bio at the bottom, especially the River Tyne with their shipbuilding uh, capabilities. In 1940, I'm pretty sure they they built four ships immediately. As soon like it took, it was extremely quick because I know by this point the industrial capacity are declining. But uh, I don't think many people know the Northeast. This is sort of the top in their sort of industrial capacity in the world not just in england but across the world and then that's why it's a major target for the luftwaffe and for the germans we've we've talked about children but also what about their mothers and and women because this is obviously this is going to change how their women into in british society is going to completely change does anyone want to start off with that I would maybe start because from December 1941, uh, the like unmarried women were allowed to enter some form of like war effort and war work. And um, although the new job creations like enlarged the opportunities for women, they were still limited a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Newcastle, women dominated volunteer positions uh, in first eight posts, and also. They physically like took part in war effort as well. For example, Nancy Spain, uh, she was born in Jesmond, and in the war, she uh, joined the Women's Royal Naval Service on Tyneside, and she then um, also be, was sent to uh, London. Yeah, that's all. There, there, there are other things that uh, women are doing as well that. They're, they're at the forefront of sort of domestic volunteering and things like that, but they're also they're joining these armed forces reserve units, aren't they? And being to the war the war effort. Can we talk about those sorts of things as well? Um, yeah, I think yeah, particularly 
obviously with the region being what the region is and as we've established it being important industrially when sort of conscription really ramped up and you had lots of men um going off and um, going into uniform going off to fight there was obviously a massive shortfall in the in the industrial workforce in the region and women really stepped in there and started really working in roles which had traditionally been seen as sort of men's roles um in these kind of quite sort of macho male dominated industry um, industries women really made up the shortfall so and um, the women worked in the shipyards um so there would just be young boys and old men who weren't able to be called up in the shipyards and many women um, ended up working in the shipyards making up the workforces there um, they also worked in in armaments factories throughout the region so you've got like obviously well-known manufacturers like Vickers Armstrong and various different engineering companies in Gateshead on the Team Valley so women were being introduced to whole new kinds of rules and and, and work which they previously wouldn't have been considered for wouldn't have had the opportunities to, to, to do and obviously proved themselves very, very capable. There's obviously a lot of women, the munitions industry as well, was obviously really important and there's a lot of women volunteered for that. Um, and there's many women, sort of two and a half thousand women from the region who actually went to other areas um, to work as munitions work, as in munitions factories, which is obviously could be quite dangerous work. It was also quite well paid work as well. And the, the, mm. the they did get quite well paid for it as well. So um, there's a, a variety of different rules. And it wasn't it wasn't just the industrial rules as well. There was... There was many different roles that women moved into that previously they hadn't had the opportunity in the war um because of necessity the war opened those opportunities up for them so yeah it was a i think it was an interesting time yeah you, you you've got a, i don't know if you got it with you but i know you've looked at a, a specific case study about rat catchers female rat catchers can you just just talk about them as a sort of case study yeah so this is um as well as obviously, as we've sort of said, we've sort of emphasised how important as an industrial area the northeast was. But as sort of we said at the start, um, Northumberland's obviously quite a rural area as well, and other areas in the northeast are as well. So agriculture is really important. So um, the, the WLA, the Women's Land Army, um, had quite a big presence in the northeast. So by sort of 1945, there was around 2,000 women in the Women's Land Army in Northumberland and uh, County Durham working up working on the land. Um, and as part of that, they split the, it, as the war progressed, they split up into small teams who would live in caravans and move around to where they needed to work. Um, and one team, one duo who were in, sort of profiled in the local newspapers were these two women who um, were, were, were the WLA's first mobile rat catchers. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that was their that was their claim to fame. I think they'd previously been like a shop assistant and a hairdresser, but they were now like professional rat catchers. And their job was to just go around and, and do that. And apparently, bags of like two hundred rats a day was that wasn't uncommon to catch that many rats in a day. <laughs> Pretty full on, but yeah. So there's just random things like that as well where you wouldn't normally consider where you know women are doing this like pretty grueling, arduous work to just sort of kind of keep keep the mm-hmm. country over. Yeah. So, so the the women's land army. That's the sort the all. That is that like an all female reserve, and they're sort of on the domestic front for the armed forces. Because obviously with rats, they it's obviously to stop them damaging crops, but also to spread disease in rural areas. Yeah, Yasmin, you've got something with the women's land army, especially with uh, timber, which is quite important. Yeah. So the women's timber. Corps were set up in 1942 and they were nicknamed the Lumber Jills. Right. And it basically just featured women cutting down trees because there was such a high demand for wood. 
and it like a lot of the men were so impressed that women could actually do that role that it was actually one of the jobs that carried on after the war and is still right. around like the women's timber corps are still around now so it's one <laughs> of like when the men came back it was one of the jobs that women just carried on doing oh wow that's great we've, we've uh, alluded to this a bit more um of course we can't just paint a whole a whole rosy picture and that's there's issues with discrimination during this time of course it's it's the 1940s and all but talk a bit can we talk about more i think someone else has has uh not just between men and women but also with ethnic and national minorities there are some there's some issues going on there isn't there yeah there were uh because um uh, during the war like many ethnic and national minorities uh lost their civil rights for example they had to register with the police and there were also like restrictions on their movement and also they for example on uh Tyneside they were uh, like categorized in three gr- groups old residents then conditional landings and also alien uh, like seamen which right. i think it's yeah quite distressing for the people who were used to live here and then with the war they had they just lost their rights basically mm-hmm. yeah the, the northeast has had interactions with a lot of ethnic and national groups famously the scottish and the irish they they formed battalions in the first world war but also in south shields in the old in the northeast sorry is there they, they've got the oldest uh, muslim community which are yemenis yemeni descendants and they're from lascars they so they served in the british empire's merchant navy and they ended up settling in south shields we talked about conflict there there's there's also some disturbances just with labor shortages and there's uh, sort of strikes and protests that are going on in the northeast as well isn't there yeah there was an industrial unrest within the duck industry uh which was like continual problem uh but there were strikes in 1942 area mm-hmm. and there, there was uh, of course it didn't it didn't explode the the joining of the communist party but it was seen as a threat so there were visitors to the northeast who were trying to uh, you know to sort of increase morale with, as they're working in these sort of very long conditions weren't they yeah there were uh, visits by politicians for example winston uh, churchill visited uh, Nero. Uh, also by celebrities like Gracie Fields and also Royal Family visited uh, visited this area. Yeah, that's great. Final point before we wrap up, we've, we've obviously missed like one of the, the big the big, big things, which is obviously soldiers and the the war plans and things that are going on. Can we talk about? The Fighting Fifth, the Northumberland Fusiliers, is one of the famous ones. Clara, so it, you've got you got to go to the Northumberland Fighting Fifth, but also the uh, the Geordie Code Code Breakers, if you could talk about that from Dan Jackson's book, The Northumberlands. Yeah, yeah. So the 
50th Northumberland Division was the most experienced battle fighting division in the British Army in the Second World War. And they were like called from Dunkirk to North Africa, uh, through Italy and eventually to Normandy as well. And as historian Dan Jackson uh, again found, found out, um, they weren't used only for fighting, but as also as a code talkers because uh, like local dialects uh, were like indecipherable for uh, Germans. Yeah, that's great. I think it was Bernard, Bernard Montgomery who led the 8th Army in North Africa. And he really loved Northeast divisions because these are these are miners and they're steel workers. They're extremely tough. And um, I'm pretty sure he said once after the war that the Durham Light Infantry was one of his favorite units and thought it was the best. And they also got along, I think this is from Dan Jackson's book as well, and they got along well with the Anzac, the Australian and New Zealand troops, instead of, you know, the more middle class southern, uh, pommy English uh, troops. They could get, they could get, they could have drinks with uh, the Geordies and other Northumberlands. Yeah, Yasmin, you've got um, some things about local defences, don't you? Yeah, so in the documentary, How We Won the War, Local historian John Sadler talked about um, Jewridge Bay in the Humberland mm-hmm. and how, obviously, as we spoke about before, there was the fear about the industrial areas and there was the fear that the Germans could invade the northeast first. So they set up trenches and pits to um, put in the home guard and they were there if the Germans advanced, they were going to be the front line. Mm-hmm. And it was actually, they were split into groups and they couldn't tell their families what their roles were in case they were caught and then tortured. But they were actually told when they started off that their life expen- expectancy, once the Germans had invaded, was 14 days. So right. the, the men who went for it were incredibly brave. Mm-hmm. And there was one um, actually surprising fact, which was that the British actor Anthony Cale, who became famous in the 1960s, was actually the British Army officer who trained the men for this role in the Fumberland. Obviously, he survived and he went on to become a big star. But yeah. it was the idea that just normal men were volunteering this to protect their family, knowing that if there was an invasion, there was hardly a chance that they were going to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, again with the Germans targeting the northeast, especially the Northumberland coast, the beaches, they were targeted for a potential German invasion because the, the sand on the beaches are very, what do you call it, very solid. And so they could land tanks and landing craft there. And I know there was some, uh, I've got the notes here, but there's these other defences that you're talking about, Yasmin, sort of backup plans. So there was the, uh, I think it was the Coquette Line. I can never pronounce that river's name. It's in Northumberland near uh, Alnwick, I think where they would, these these older men, these home guard people that you're talking about, Yasmin, they would defend defend the line, say if the Germans come from northern Northumberland, they'd defend the Coquette River, and then they'd be pushed back to the Tyne defence line, where defences were also set up, and they'd, they were going to do a scorched earth policy, and so you had these British intelligence handing out secret codes to business owner, owners and factory workers, and they were planning to, if there was a German invasion, blow up all the bridges on the River Tyne, Except the swing bridge, which I think was going to be uh, just decommissioned or just broken up. They couldn't destroy the whole thing. And then all these factories would have been blown up as well. And it would have went all the way down the Tyne Valley to North and South Shields, where the sort of even the ferry landing between the two towns would have been 
destroyed and the ship scuttled. So that and, and then like you're saying, yes, these are ordinary men who have to have to do this, and they're quite brave for doing it if if they were going to have to. You've also got a few case studies, don't you, Yasmin, about how certain fortifications were set up, like Tynemouth Castle and what was going on in, in Jasmine Dean. Yes, yeah, so Tynemouth Castle was, and um, there was guns put in place in Tynemouth Castle in World War One, but obviously they were taken down because they didn't think they'd need them again. But then in 1940, they added in a four-inch naval gun, and it was actually intended as a practice weapon to use to train gun crews for armed merchant vessels. And then Jasmine Dean House was used for two reasons. In 1940, it was the headquarters for 80 men of the 12th Battalion, the Fumbland Home Guard. And these were just volunteers who trained in tactics that they would use in the event of an invasion. But it was later given to the headquarters for the Air Raid Precautions Network in Newcastle. But they built in the house, there's actually tunnels which are used for control rooms and it, there's actually still air raid shelters. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Across the whole North East, you can still visit them. There are uh, air raid shelters and uh, pillboxes where the where machine gun nests would be set up. And they're in the sort of the countryside of Northumberland where you can, you can still find them to this day. I think that's most. Does it have any sort of case stories or anything nice to sort of leave us on a sort of good note they want to talk about? And there was, I found, in the Northeast Film Archive about, obviously, when Victory was called. Mm-hmm. And it was a video about celebrations held in Gateshead. But the caption was, a victory in Europe is officially declared by Churchill. An off-duty policeman captures the celebrations in Gateshead. Flags and buttons strung between terraces and jubilant women and children gathered for street parties, waving defiant teapots after years of wartime blackouts, bombs and ration cards. Lovely. Great. I think that's a perfect way to uh, wrap, wrap this episode up. I think that was great. That's the last episode of the, the Northern Fights podcast. That was great. Epic. Great. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, everyone, for joining the last episode of the Northern Fights podcast. This has been a university project. We've had... It's been, a, it's been a learning experience, but really thanks for everyone watching and for everyone who's been speaking and helping out. Thank you very much. I'll see you all later.